coming up on this episode of Post-Typhoon East Screen, West Screen. We do a little bit of catch-up as Paul talks about some of the Hong Kong films he's seen recently. And for our films this week, Bad Genius and What Happened to Monday. This is East Screen, West Screen with Paul and Kevin, where if films were food, they'd be full of it. And welcome to another episode of East Screen, West Screen. This is the show where we talk about film from Hong Kong to Hollywood and some other stuff in between. I'm your host, Paul Fox, sitting here in sunny South Florida. And coming to us from his news desk in post-Typhoon Hato, Hong Kong, is none other than Mr. Kevin Ma. Hey there, Paul. How's it going? Hello, sir. You made it through. You're safe. You're dry now. And uh, all is well, right? Oh, as well. I mean, the thing is, Hong Kong is very well prepared for typhoons. Um, the observatory warned us way, way ahead. And um, yeah, uh, um, it's just been, you know, we're very well prepared. So we, we were all told to stay indoors. And, you know, we had to signal up at 6 a.m. So we all knew not to go outdoors unless we really have to. And some people would have to go to work. So, of course, there was some trouble. But uh, and of course, some neighborhoods got slammed worse than others. But I pretty much stayed in stayed at home the whole day i mean some parts were a little bit of well some you know my window was a little shaking a little bit more than than usual um so it was a little scary for a second but um i mean when all died down me at the end some trees and waves and most places in hong kong was okay but you know of course you see some footage and there were some you know waves and some flooding um, which you can't avoid for such a really such a strong storm. Um, but no, Hong Kong is fairly well prepared for this type of stuff. I mean, it happens a few times a year. And, you know, all the buildings, um, actually my building swayed a little bit in the wind. But I, I was told that that's actually part of design and you should be swaying. Otherwise, if you're not swaying, then you're in big trouble. Yeah, indeed. Uh, better to sway than not sway uh, when, the, when those winds are coming through because you need a little bit of give and take yeah. uh, as that stuff uh, you know makes the building shift around so uh, that's all good i mean there's some interesting footage out there that you can catch on social media and some other sites um and it looks like macau got a pretty big brunt of the storm and they're having trouble because you know their infrastructure i guess as we were talking about before the show is pretty heavily reliant on uh, mainland china right that's right. Um, actually, 80% of the electricity comes from China, and their government doesn't really have much accountability because they're very much um, – uh, a lot of people are blaming the government for this because there is no real such thing as accountability. People in Macau are very – they're very um, – what's the word? Um, they're very be- – they behave very well. Unlike unlike you know Hong Kong people who constantly demand accountability and and it seemed like the meteorology department screwed up because they declared the alarm way too late so people weren't prepared and then you know you have to problem with the power when eighty percent of it comes from Zhuhai and when Zhuhai runs out of power they're gonna solve they're gonna take care of their own power supply first so Macau got screwed over in the end and and it showed a lot of sort of weakness in their infrastructure to handle this sort of disaster. Yeah, I mean, hopefully 
going forward, um, Macau can uh, learn some lessons from this and, uh, you know, maybe back a power plan or something to keep the casinos running, right? Because that's what's important. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's 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 interesting to see this. I mean, because Macau, if you've never been to Hong Kong, it's about a one-hour ferry boat ride away, so it's not far at all. You would think that they'd be somewhat reliant on the observatory from Hong Kong, you know, which has got a pretty good reputation as far as these things go. You would think that they just default over to the Hong Kong Observatory and say, okay, uh, you know, they're, they're raising this signal, so we're just going to follow suit and, and go with them. Because by proxy, Macau's not really a big place, and um, the infrastructure is not quite as uh, well-developed, I would say, as Hong Kong. Well, they are kind of their own administrative region, so, of course, they have their own observatory, and perhaps out of pride, perhaps out of whatever. I mean, the thing, the head of the meteorology um, what we call the observatory. They he that guy resigned today, the day after all this hit. And again, I mean, there are a lot of uh, it feels like a lot of um, Macau residents are woke, um, to use a current term. Um, they got woke about about some of the weakness in their government ha- ability to handle this sort of stuff. Um, I don't know what this is gonna mean. If this is gonna become, it's gonna um, affect how Macau people see their government, but. Like I said, Macau people, Macanese people are known to be much more "quote unquote." Um, let's just say they are less rebellious than Hong Kongers, and they they sort of tend to just go with the flow, and and they tend to do a lot of. For example, what we I hate to go into politics again, but for example, the Article Twenty Three, which is the whole thing about state security, Macau had no problem passing that, and Macau has no problem with relying everything on mainland China, but Hong Kong. We demand that a lot of things. We sort of become self-reliant on things. So, for example, we have our own. Most I think I think mostly we generate our own electricity, and, and we do buy water from from China. But um, uh, there's of course a lot of talk about the weakness in that, and perhaps this might also sort of uh, review that. There's been talk for the last couple of years about buying electricity from China, but um, this might change some people's minds. Hmm. Yeah, indeed. Well, regardless, if you are in either place, Hong Kong or Macau, we hope you're safe. We hope that uh, the damage was not too extensive and uh, did not inconvenience you um, all that much. Guess what? There's another typhoon coming this weekend, but I'll be out of town, so um, I won't have to worry so much Mm. about that. Yes, you're off to Japan, right? That's right. I'm off to Japan for a couple of days, a small vacation. Um, Yeah, so so, um, hopefully the place will be well protected while I'm gone. Yes, do stay dry. Um, But we are not here to talk about the weather. We are here to talk about movies and stuff. So it is time, as we always do, for our news section, which is going to be a little bit different this week. But I'm going to throw the talking stick back over to Kevin at his news desk with this week's news. Here at the news desk, it is completely empty. I don't... There wasn't really much news to talk about. I mean, we could talk about the Hitman's bodyguard, you know, going straight to Netflix in Japan or whatnot. We could talk about Death Note, but I think we could save that all later until we actually see Death Note. Um, So instead, I know, Paul, you've been catching up on uh, Hong Kong films recently, right? Yes, the uh, sort of the the first batch of early films um, between a combination of releases to Hong Kong iTunes and stuff I ordered from... uh, uh, yes, Asia, you know, I, I've sat down to sort of skim through that. Um, so I'm through a good portion of those. And I guess it's a good time to sort of reflect back because most of these were covered by Kevin early on and I wasn't able to comment on them. 
Um, but uh, going back to, um, I guess, the, the, the earliest film I haven't seen yet, which is Cherry Returns. Um, and I'm still debating because I've heard that's a pretty bad film. So I'm still debating whether I should shell out for that one or not. I'm probably going to at some point. Um, but the Lucky Fat Man, which, Kevin, I remember you did not like at all. Um, <laughs> I did manage to finally get down a chance to sit down and power through that. And, yeah, it is, a, again, a case of, I think, uh, a sort of made-to-order film. Uh, the director, you know, Jill Kwong, is known kind of for working within the framework of, uh, of uh, what's his name, uh, you know, our favorite director, uh, it's a Patrick Kong movie. Patrick Kong. Pa- yeah, Patrick yeah. Kong. Um, it, so it's very much a Patrick Kong movie. It's got a Patrick Kong twist in there, which really isn't a twist. You kind of see it coming the moment um, certain characters pop on screen. The I guess the real question for this film is, do you enjoy Bob Lamb enough to want to see him in a leading role um, like this, where he's doing sort of that Bob Lamb-style humor which I can only I can only say is kind of trying to be adult without being able to be adult, right? Um, it feels like he wants to play in that realm of of adult comedy that a lot of Hollywood films do these days. You know, again, the, the things like The Hangover or something about Mary, but they just they don't you know do that with except, rare exceptions like you know Vulgaria, and so you have him doing things like you know, having to chew on a condom in one scene. And it's just not very funny at times. And I don't blame Bob Lamb because I've seen him in stuff where I think he's very good. He's usually a very good character actor, a very good supporting actor. But for this as a starring vehicle for him, I just don't think there was enough to really highlight, um, you know, what he's going to do. He's, you know, tasked with just really weird and crude things to do at times that, for myself, I just didn't think we're very funny. And I guess, you know, the producers, the directors, the writers, people on set thought it was funny at the time. But I don't know if an audience would all find it all that funny either. be interesting to see, you know, in a, in a house of Hong Kongers, how many laughs this film got. But really, it's just, you know, it's kind of trying to position itself in that time period as a family not really a family but a but a uh get lucky kind of chinese new year film really um and yeah it's, it's the bob lamb chinese new year film that no one asked for <laughs> exactly essentially. um and so you know it's got pretty much that going forward and not a whole lot else i mean um i wasn't really interested in him developing a relationship with the the cute actress they hire played by i think it's natalie tong um, his relationship with his wife, which is played by, um, uh, she's not really an actress. She's one of these, uh, astrologers who's so popular that they be, can become an actress. Um, oh, Ling Ling. Ling Ling, yeah, yeah. 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 And, you know, it's just, you know, and she's like got mental issues and it's just, it's, it's a, it's a very weird kind of hodgepodgey thing that maybe would have worked in the nineties but it just kind of feels a little bit out of place in in the modern era. And it's a shame because, again, I think that, you know, Bob Lamb is not without talent, um, but the kind of stuff they have him doing here, it's just not that suitable, I think. I, I didn't find it um, all that funny. It's, it's a fairly forgettable film. Again, if you're somebody who enjoys 
a kind you know this kind of comedy you know you can you can power your way through it and you probably won't necessarily want to return to it it's not it's not definitely not gonna be a classic it definitely doesn't instill in me you know when chinese new year rolls around anything that makes me want to say hey i've i'm in the mood for a holiday film and this is one that i'm gonna go back to so um you know there you have it it's uh you know it, it it's just a film that's there out there it's it's one to see if you got to keep up with everything in 2017 and you're right i mean the thing is you know bob lamb it's not you can't blame bob lamb for this i mean bob lamb just had like a fourth kid or a fifth kid like his fifth kid was born this week so i mean the man needs to get paid so yeah. <laughs> i don't i don't blame i don't Baby blame him I mean, he's not shoes. Exactly. He's not he's not a terribly he's not a terribly bad actor. I mean, sometimes he can overdo it a little bit, but it's just a, it's just a case of Hong Kong overutilizing people who are popular. I mean, the whole idea that what's her name? Ling Ling. I forgot her surname. I'm sorry. Mac Ling Ling. Yeah. Yeah. Ma Ling Ling can actually become an actress. I mean, again, just overutilizing the flavor of the month. It's just a very Hong Kong thing. So it's just overutilizing Bob into something that he probably shouldn't be doing. Um and I'm sure he's happy to do it. I mean, it's a leading role in a film. He's not going to say no to that. He's not going to say, I can only pick films I'm passionate about. I mean, come on. So, um, yeah, it's hard to blame him for it. But the whole thing is just mis- misconceived and it's terribly, terribly made. I don't remember much of it. I just remember really hating it. Yeah. it's uh, And, you know, it's got Tommy Wong here as well, who, you know, he's a, he's a classic actor from, from the 80s, 90s, usually a villain him playing sort of the, the begrudging father of Mac Ling Ling. And even there's a scene where, you know, the two of them end up having to make out or, or kiss or something. And it's just, it could have been funny if it was not handled so, like, ram it down your throat, in your face, kind of a manner directorially. Um, and it's just it's just uncomfortable more so than, than being funny. Mm-hmm. Um and you know, again, missed opportunities. I think is is the best way to describe uh, Lucky Fat Man. The uh, second film in the rundown. I'm not going to talk a lot about here because I do have plans to cover it uh, later um, with uh, Kenneth Brorson over at the Podcast on Fire, and that is Yuppie Fantasia Three, a carryover from the Yuppie Fantasia series. In um, I think is the primarily the late early, early 90s. This is a film that uh, is a continuation of those two films, and I was very interested to see kind of how they did that, given the huge time gap and the fact that uh, certain cast members from the original series don't appear. So, But that's a film I'm going to be talking more about uh, in, in the future. But that's out there. It's on um, both on Hong Kong iTunes and U.S. iTunes. Um, so that's uh, pretty readily available for uh, fans over in Asia and for fans in the United States. The uh, next in the lineup, of course, the one I was looking forward to probably most uh, early this year was Journey to the West, Demons Strike Back, which um, recently, you know, it got it had a huge discount for whatever reason over on uh, on Amazon Prime Video, um, and it was massively discounted. And I posted a message over in the Love HK film group on... Um, about this because i'm sure that most people there who wanted to see it had probably already seen it but it was just too good of a deal to pass up now the downside with that is that with movies on amazon typically these movies you don't have any options you don't have any extras 
this is the one area where I think Amazon really fails in comparison with iTunes because with iTunes, usually they give you the option of multiple language tracks and um, multiple subtitle tracks, whereas with a lot of the Amazon stuff, it's usually a single track and usually hard-coded subtitles and no extras of any kind. Um, and often you're still paying the same price for stuff. So, But uh, it was a deal that I said, well, I'm going to just jump on this because I've been wanting to watch it. I'm probably going to pick it up in some other format later anyway, and it was cheap enough to, to make that decision. Um, but yeah, this is the Stephen Chow follow-up to Journey to the West, Conquering Demons. Uh, pretty much replaced the cast outright, but I think that overall it's an interesting carryover. Kevin, when you talked about this, you talked a little bit about um, some of the adult nature in terms of it being rather scary. Um, also, the characters being somewhat uh, changed in that they're fearful, they're mean to each other uh, throughout much of it. And I really did get a sense of that in watching it. For me, it really compresses a lot uh, into the movie. Whereas if you look at for example, Aaron's movie, The Monkey King 2, which pretty much focuses on the white bone demon and sort of retelling that story. This one has, I think, crammed in Red Boy, it crams in uh, white bone demon, and the spider demons, right? Those are all like three, if you go back to the classic Shaw movies, those are all like three completely different movies. So they take those storylines and kind of compress them all into this. So there's a lot going on in this. Um, and overall, I think that the characterizations are still fairly entertaining. Some of the art direction and style that was established in Conquering Demons carries through on this. Um, you know, so, so for example, the character of Pigsy go, or, or Chewbacca, he goes around most of the time in his sort of handsome but plasticky looking face uh, <laughs> look that was kind of established in Conquering Demons. And and that looks good. Um, and then um, Fish Demon, um, a Friar San, who's the was the Fish Demon in the first one, he looks a bit different because he's got now like sort of a half-demon form that he stays in um, through a lot of the film. And you, of course, have the recasting of Chris Wu as the monk. And he's fine, I guess. He seemed a little bit young uh, for the role for me, for my taste, compared with... Um, who who was who did it in uh, in Conquering Ooh. Demons? Kevin, do you remember? Wen Zhang. Wen, Wen Zhang. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and I, I thought that he he had a bit more gravitas in that film than Chris Wu does here. Um, he's fine. The Monkey King himself. Um, I mean, <laughs> yeah. I mean. <laughs> Go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> well, what can you say? You know, it, it's definitely not my favorite performance uh, of the Monkey King. I don't even think it's my favorite look, to be sure. Um, I'm sure I'll have a lot of things to say once I eventually sit down and see Wukong, which Kevin talked about last week, in terms of, of you know, the look. They do that same thing, though, where uh, through, through a lot of it, he's in human form, and then in, in parts where he gets angry, he transforms... Um, they reflect back on the music quite a bit, which they touched on in the first one. But here it felt like they really utilized the, the you know, the musical riffs from the actual Stephen Chow Chinese Odyssey 
films uh, a lot more here. So, uh, and, and it was fine. The, the, it was a very effects-heavy film, and it didn't always work, especially if you're watching the high-definition version. Um, sometimes, it, you know, it really, it very much stands out. There's a scene towards the beginning where Chris Wu, it's kind of like a Gulliver's Travels moment, and uh, he's surrounded by all these little people and, or little beings, little demons, whatever they were. And through that whole sequence... Um, he's like accidentally knocking things down and, you know, he's trying to be very careful. He's catching them and it's, it looks very much like it's just massively fake. Um, so you have, and that's just because of the high definition nature of it. So you, you have that kind of thrown in there, but overall, I think it was entertaining on, um, a level that didn't quite match the first one, but was still somewhat fun and frenetic enough to watch. It's interesting to try and see the division between where you feel Stephen Chow coming through and where you feel like Soy Hart coming through. The um, So that was, you know, that was also interesting for me. But I think as a Monkey King Journey to the West kind of story, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's just another one out there in the weirdness of these variations that we've gotten. I was particularly disturbed in one point because, you know, the in the spider demons parts, you've got these women who are very seductive and sultry looking. They're like half spiders in parts and half of a woman's body sticking off another part. Um, it's a really strange design, interesting design. But at one point, like, Pig Pigsy loses control and he basically starts dry humping one. <laughs> I'm like, what? <laughs> Wait a minute. This is, you know, this is normally a property that is uh, targeted at families and, and in particular kids because of the renown of the monkey king. I'm thinking, wait a minute, we're, we're not in family territory here anymore. So, uh, yeah, it, you know, it's definitely worth a watch, I would say, but it doesn't, in terms of being um, a purely entertaining retelling of monkey king tales, I think they just cram too much into it. There's too many ideas bouncing around. And I, I don't think it comes close, at least in terms of the Monkey King performance, I don't think it comes close to Aaron's performance in the Monkey King 2. Um, there is a end credit scene at the end, and I remember Kevin making a specific note that he felt that this was a controversial, at least in your screening, right, Kevin? Yeah, yeah, it was. Uh, there was a child who went into Stephen Chow mode, as I say, in his <laughs> ranting. So, so I don't yeah, know how so, you felt about it. So you saw, so your version also had that uh, Easter egg. Yes, it was there right at the end, it, and it um, seemed like it was shot. It was shot like it looked like it was shot a day before it was opening in Hong Kong, and it was just for the Hong Kong audience. That's yeah. what it felt like, or, or maybe yeah. at the at the at the premiere screening. <laughs> yeah, um, but yeah. So you know, be if you haven't done so, be sure you kind of stick through the credits, and uh, you can catch a glimpse uh, of that. So. Um, yeah, there's that. And then let's see, what was next on the list? Stephen Chow. Um, Cook Up a Storm. So this is the Nick Tse cooking feature. Um, Kevin also covered this uh, back in uh, February. Directed by Raymond Yip with Nicholas Tse, Jung Yong-hua, uh, Tiffany Tang, and Michelle Bai, among others. Uh, most notably, though, I'd say is probably uh, Anthony Wong and Wong Chao-sung. And... Uh, I kind of went in this a little bit hesitant, I would say, because I'm not a big Nick Tse fan. But overall, I ended up 
kind of liking the film. Um, certainly not a great film. Not a film that compares by any means to other cooking films. It does riff heavily and actually plagiarize maybe a little bit from things like God of Cookery, which I think Kevin mentions sort of in the in the final battle. It's pretty much just copying from that almost. <laughs> um, and it's not quite as, you know, when it comes to like showing food and things, it's, it's nowhere near as exciting as I want to say um, the Chinese feast or, uh, you know, something like that where you've got, you know, the, the idea of the mysticism and the history and, and the culture of cooking kind of embedded in there. Um, sure, they have some sequences where the food preparation looks nice and it kind of makes you hungry, but sometimes that's ruined by really lousy CG. Um, so, and and yeah, I'm just thinking that, like there's a scene where they're cleaning a fish. I think it's a piece of salmon or a piece of piece of fish that they're going to eat, and you know they're showing, supposed to be showing the skill of cooking and by pulling out bones and they're CGI bones. I mean, really, it's, <laughs> I mean, it's like, okay. You know, in the older films, they didn't have the luxury of CGI. They actually had to get people who could cook or who could do some decent practical effects to make it look like that's a really cool dish that you're cooking somehow in an amazing way. Um, so I do think that this film suffers from, from some of that and from the ending, which I just felt like yeah, okay, you know, it, it it is what it is. Um but overall I think the look of it and uh the the you know, the 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 general sort of happy feel of it, you know, because it's one of those films that's you're you're supposed to feel happy by the end, I guess, even though Nick Say wasn't happy at any part of it. Um you know, I I was okay with it. It's not uh it's not the worst film of the year by far. Um Kevin, you were not a big fan of this though. No, it was just a film that's well. First of all, there are a couple of problems with the film. I mean, first of all, it's the problem is that it was designed as a film that sells Nick Say as a cook. It's a sell. It's a it's a extension of the Chef Nick brand. That's right. the problem. Because the problem is then that you're not selling the food. You're not trying to be creative with the food. You're trying to be creative with what Nick can do with uh, a skillet or whatever with whatever cooking tools he has so it becomes a sh it becomes the the star is nick not the food and that's a big problem in a cooking film and it's such a lazily directed film that you have a cooking competition where people are waving light sticks <laughs> i don't to this day i don't understand why you would ever wave anything at a cooking competition ever Celebr like it's, it's just a, celebrity it chefs just, you know and they're all they're all handsome just such, dudes <laughs> just such a lazy detail they probably just stole it from some you know from some default cgi concert background and lay it on there and go yeah that's the one that's fine and no one ever asked like hey uh raymond why, why are they waving, waving light sticks <laughs> oh yeah oh yeah why are they yeah that's that's not the human i mean the thing is now that i've become more like aware of how films are done behind the scenes and how long the post-production process is and i know how many people work on this and how many how many times people see films in post-production um it's just painfully aware that it's like no one dared to ask the question like it it's just what happened well so it is, it it is, is you know we, we mentioned macau at the beginning it is a a major advertisement for studio city in macau which um is a, one of the fairly newer 
big uh, hotels over there in the in the Kotai Strip, and it's very, you know, it's it's movie themed and it's family oriented. But um, like the whole end competition, last act of the film basically takes place there, and it's very much in your face that it is there and it's in their arena and everything. So, I guess because they do concerts there, they wanted to, they felt it was just an easy venue to make it seem like another concert, even though it's a cooking show or a cooking oh, I don't competition. Think, I don't... Oh, I don't even think the in the interior was shot in Studio City. I think that's, that's oh, you don't think estimating. You don't think that no. was their soundstage? Okay. No, that's definitely just some green screen in their back. I mean, there's no, there's not even any. That's definitely a CGI crowd. So they probably just filmed that on a soundstage somewhere in Guangzhou. Hmm. I mean, that's the thing. Just like where they shot most of the other film. Um, so no, I, I think that's sort of giving them too much credit, Paul. That they actually rented <laughs> out space in Studio City to shoot it. Okay. Too much credit they get. Uh, you know, it, the other thing that I was a little bit disappointed about, too, is because part of the film centers on this whole idea of the old versus the new. And so you have, you know, this Michelin three-star chef who's coming in and he's got new ideas, but he's somehow lost his sense of taste, right? Uh, reminiscent of uh, Eat, Drink, Man, Woman, right? Remember that movie? Mm-hmm. Um, oh. And then you've got on the other side Nick and his, you know, crew who work in this restaurant called uh you know sevens which is you know just this sort of street local food kind of thing and one is encroaching on the territory of the other and but they you know they they very keep it very much apolitical it's never like uh you know oh your guys are you know the rich are coming in to tear us down and 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 none of that gets really thrown to the front i know that you know as a china film they don't want to get too touchy with that but by the end it was kind of like Wait a minute, what's going on? Because at one point, the uh, um, the rival character, Korean chef, I forget his name, in in the film, he gets ousted because of his sense, lack of sense of taste by his partner, who suddenly can just take his place. I mean, I don't know how competitions work, but that <laughs> just seems like a very odd thing. And then you think there's going to be this big kind of elimination thing... And there never really is. It's just like, you know, there's these other chefs there and they're all competing, but it's really only like Nick Tse, who's, you know, any got any kind of chance and competing against, uh, uh, you know, going up to, in competition against uh, the Anthony Wong character. So and, and there's a relationship there, but it just it felt very anticlimactic by the end. You know, when you think about. Comp- competitive style movies and the way that that kind of plot formula works, this really didn't seem to achieve um, near the scope of how those kind of movies work. I mean, again, think back to like God of Cookery or the Chinese Feast or others where, you know, it's like, oh, uh, you're supposed to ramp up and there's like an elimination round and, oh, some problem is thrown into the mix and then what are you going to do? And um, it just, it felt like the stakes were not ever very high. Um, but, you know, again, it's it's a film, like Kevin said, that's really their kind of highlight, uh, Chef Nick. So uh, we'll see if uh, Chef Nick gets some traction out of this, I guess. So that's a quick wrap-up of uh, the early year films. Um, I've still got Love, Contractually on Deck, and Shockwave, which is just released to Hong Kong iTunes. And hopefully I'll be getting to those uh, later this week, and we'll come back to do some further updates uh, love off the cuff is in my order queue on yes asia doesn't look like that's going to get a digital release at least not anytime soon and i think um 
direct-to-video film called With Prisoners is out. I've also got um, 52 Hertz I Love You on my queue, um, that Taiwan film. There's another film, Kevin, that I wanted to ask you about. It's called uh, To Love or Not to Love, um, Crosby Yip film that, from what I can tell, got a release, but I don't know if it's... I, I can't find anything about it on video. It was showing like a May or a March uh, release, according to sources online. Do you know anything about that? Huh. I, I was like, who's Crosby Yip? Um, no, this looks like a very, very small release. It was a, a campus rom-com film, and such a small release. And, it, you know, it's kind of like with Prisoner, right? Kind of made by these, you know, young directors who have, you know, yeah, I've heard of this film now that I've seen the Chinese title, but um, no, I, I didn't even bother to catch it because mm-hmm. it's such a random little release. And of course, it probably wasn't seen in that many theaters. And yeah, oh, it was probably before. I don't remember why I missed it. Well, I mean, just the basic look at the poster. I mean, that's enough to miss it, right? <laughs> so, sorry. But, so that's out there. But, and I was yeah. telling Kevin, I've been ang- very anxious to watch um, not a this year film, but a late last year film. Uh, Ellis for Love, Ellis for Lies 2, which is nowhere to be found, and I don't know what's up with that. Um, but I've, I, there's there's nothing in terms of coming soon or an expected release date on video sites. Um, I've even looked at some um, some overseas video sites out of Malaysia, Singapore, can't find anything on it, so I don't know why they're holding the film. Um, but it seem, you know, it's surprising because that's also a Patrick Kong joint, right? Uh, that is a Patrick Kong joint, you know, so and we, yeah, we, got, and we even, got Lucky Fat Man right away, and we can't get Steffi. So what's up with that? And you know, I told you, it even played on Cathay Pacific already. So that was yeah. a very weird. They, yeah. they must have gotten tied up in some kind of distribution logistics hell or something. I don't know. Um, yeah. But yeah, that's a quick wrap up of the stuff that I've seen, and uh, as we go further through the year. Uh, when we come back from our short break, uh, I hope to do some further catch-up and quick review. And, of course, we'll also be back with uh, Kevin and news, real news, not this fake news that I'm giving you. <laughs> we have the best news, the best <laughs> news, just just the best news, the fantastic news. Fantastic. Okay. All right. Well, that's going to wrap it up for this section. We'll be back in a minute after this short musical interlude with Kevin's review of the Thai film Bad Genius. And welcome back. So Kevin is here with his review this week of Bad Genius, a film that I'd hoped to get out and see, but not playing anywhere near me. Yeah, um, well, Paul gave me a choice. Um, it was a there was a Chinese film called The Legend of Naga Pearl, um, which stars Darren Wang from uh, Got Our Times. And then there was this Thai film, Bad Genius, that I saw a few weeks ago that is topping the box office in a few places around Asia. And I decided that I need to treat myself better. So yes. I decided to after, not... After, well, what, what was it? Transformers, then Meow, and then 
something else. You know, you've had enough punishment. Yeah. Well, the thing is, Nagapuro was wasn't released on many screens, and it's one of those films where if I didn't have the movie group to push me, it's really tough to get me to go see it. Plus, you know, right, I'm right in the middle of the uh, well, I was in the middle of the Cinefan Summer Film Festival, and I had like three films to watch, so I was like, man, I I'm just going to relax and not force myself to watch everything. Although I will tell you, next week we're talking about. Um, I think I'll be watching, in addition to Paradox, I'm going to try to watch this film, local film called Members Only. And the rest of the movie group have ref- has refused to to watch it, but I'm going to do, I'm going to take one for the team. All right? I'm going to take one for the team, this, and I'm going to watch it. Is this it, a Scud gonna... film? Why? Why? No, no, it's uh, it's one of those um, uh, low-rent um, kind of Lan Kui Fong wannabe movies. Oh, that sounds yeah, like even fun. Directed, <laughs> even produced by the same same guys. Local, I think local productions is a company. Um, and I mean, it looks terrible and there's no real like uh, big name actors in there. It just looks like and it's actually category free. Um, it just looks like a really cheap C grade Hong Kong film. And uh, I'll be glad to take one for the team and I will talk about it in uh, like two episodes, maybe three episodes. I don't know. Nice. Looking forward to that. I will do it. Okay. And then okay. Anyway, back to this film, Bad Genius. This is the Thai. Um, how do how do how do you categorize it? I think it's a teen heist film. That's what I call it. Um, that's coming from Thailand. It's a very um, uh, successful film at the moment. It the um, it top box office in Thailand, of course, and also in Taiwan and now Hong Kong. It, t- it was a top film over the weekend. Um, and uh, yeah, the film uh, is from uh, directed by Nathan Wood. Poop, sorry, I'm sorry to my Thai listeners. Lata Wood, Lata He directed. He previously directed a film called Countdown, which was more a very more convention, not conventional, but it was like a a thriller, a more sort of uh, horror thriller, psycho thriller kind of thing. This is a more conventional uh, heist movie. Um, the film stars a couple of Thai actors whose name is way, way, way too long for me to not screw up. So um, I will try later. But I'm, instead, I'm going to go straight into the story. Um, in the story, Lin, uh, played by Mato Chutiman Chen Charop Enksujin. Uh, anyway, her nickname is Alcop. Um, Lin is a straight-A student who gets the idea to help rich students cheat for money after helping Grace and Pat, her best friends. Um, and rich friends. Lin's business skyrockets uh, and the money starts to flood in as scores of students offer cold hard cash in exchange for exam answers. One day, Lin is offered the opportunity to make millions of baht when Pat and Grace devise a plan for her to take the ESTIC test, which is the international standardized test for students uh, wanting to enroll in universities. Essentially, it's the SAT, but, you know, with a different name. However, Lin needs to help a bank, another poor scholarship student who may let his ethics guess to get the best of him. Um, so this is an update of the high genre. You could tell um, the high school high school students take the place of you know professional thieves, and there are no. Uh, I was just watching The Adventures before we started to record, and I can see how that film really stuck too much to 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 familiar genre formula, while this film really is about subverting it or refreshing it. And this this time, the test answers are the MacGuffin. It's the it's how they're going to make money, and the smart kids are the thieves. Um, so that's already very interesting because it's a really great idea and it's just executed in a very, very 
great way. Um, the film also deals with a bit of uh, half and half nods because it's about these poor scholarship students in this elite school that's insanely expensive, and the way they the only way they can get ahead is to to make money off rich kids by cheating by by cheating their way up the social ladder and and in a way they they also make it a point to sort of reflect that in the adult world you know the, the, in in certain um, there's a point where the film talks about how these these parents have to pay not only tuition but also so-called tea money these hidden fees in order to sort of keep their kids in the school um and so it's about you know more the more power you the more money you have the more power you have the the more ability you have to to stay stay ahead of the pack and so this, this is a very a subtly socially conscious film in a way um it's very smart it's very suspenseful and it's very entertaining. I mean, the film comes up uh, with some very ingenious way to cheat, which perhaps you do not want your kids to watch. But anyway, I mean, after this film, I'm sure teachers will get even more aware of how kids cheat. I mean, everyone had ways of cheating when we we're in high school. It just depends on how smart or how stupid those ways are. Um, let's face it. So this film is one of those where they're so insanely smart that it's probably not really, you know, possible in real in real life um yet you know the film the filmmakers don't really ignore the moral dilemma that's in most heist movies you know we always root for these thieves who steal and 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 you know robbery is not a victimless crime someone is going to lose something out of it um and there is a certain of course um uh, uh, lack of fairness when you know the kids are getting test scores for free and things like that there are victims in this you know um and and the film does wrestle with that moral dilemma um and so in that sense i think because we've watched we've been we've been watching heist movies for so long we've been rooting for thieves for so long we have this robin hood complex where we think the heroes in these heist movies are always helping out they have some kind of more more you know noble intentions that we're conditioned to see them get away but the film doesn't let them off that easy it's it's um it's not morally gray but there's a certain they they do wrestle with the dilemma of the moral dilemma in the films and the characters actions and i find that very interesting in this this genre um but in a sense a lot of people do have problem with the ending because it is not a uh, a clean getaway it's not an escapist escapism movie where you know people wink and then they get away and then they just keep stealing it's not that type of film um and and it doesn't really make easy choices but i agree the ending could have been smoothed out a little bit there are some sort of character character um turns that don't didn't really convince me as much um and i think it could have smoothed out a little bit but the film's already 130 minutes long so maybe they ran out of time but i thought it could have set up a little bit better um the the cast of fresh faces is really great all four leads are young actors um, and I think they all really have bright future ahead of them. Um, Al Cop, who plays Lynn, is excellent. Uh, she's actually she's a model, and this is her first feature film. Um, and then you have the rest of the cast, the the the, the, character, the actor who plays Bank, uh, also excellent. And then the two the two um, rich kids, of course, they're attractive and and they're charming. And like I said, they have they have real bright futures ahead of them. I think. Um, let's face it, cre- creativity in Thai cinema really has been eclipsing 
this whole greater China region for quite a long time. Um, I think they have some really fresh talents. I have another film um, that I highly, highly recommend, and this um, uh, called it's called Heart Attack by uh, a director named Nawapo, N-A-W-A-P-O-L. Um, it's a film about a freelancer uh, who doesn't sleep at all and risks his health. Um, and then he's forced to re-examine his life when he starts getting a rash. Um, and I think it's one of the best Asian films in the last year or two. Um, and it is not a fluke because, you know, these young Thai directors are really striking, are, are really hitting them out of park in, ter- in both art house circuit and also in the commercial circuit. Um, of course, there are a lot of unseen commercial films that we don't see from Thailand, but there, I can already name quite a few. One Day, for example, from a few years ago, uh, two years ago, I think, was excellent. Um, I In Osaka, I saw another Thai film called Gift, which is an omnibus uh, featuring films by several young directors, and they're all, most of them are great as well. Um, and what else? Um, not One Day, the one before One Day, A Teacher's Diary, um, another really great film. Um, this this uh, company called GDH, which is uh, which was GTH. Uh, this is Thai Thailand's um, most successful commercial film studio. They started putting up their films on iTunes for the past few years, um, and hopefully they will eventually upload Bad Genie. It's hard to tell because the foreign sales in this film has been really strong, so perhaps they're not going to make it so accessible to uh, as much as the other films but heart attack is the, and one day and the teacher's diary they're definitely available on itunes around the world um if not most places if not all places then most countries so they're definitely worth checking out um and it's really time to pay attention to them and bad genius is just another example of that kind of really great t- creativity coming out of uh, thai cinema um, this is highly recommended, so definitely see it when you can. Uh, I know the film in the States, it will be closing um, the Asian pop-up cinema uh, season 5 uh, in Chicago. I forget which day, but it's definitely coming in the next couple of months. But I think it will get its... Uh, it had its North American premiere at New York Asian Film Festival, but Chicago will also get this film at this Asian pop-up cinema. So definitely look out for it when it comes out. It is um, just a really great time in the movies and really smart and... and yeah, highly, highly recommend it. How does it compare to a film? I mean, I know it's a different genre, but in terms of like, you you mentioned that uh, one of the, I guess, plot points of this is the creative ways in which they're showing cheating going on. And that was one of the things that they highlighted a little bit in the Hong Kong film Trick or Cheat back in 2009. Now, that's not a great film by, you know, any any lengths. It's got like, what? six different directors or something. Um, and, and, you know, cause it's all, it's a piecemeal film basically, but it did have some sort of interesting for the era, uh, creative ways in which, you know, people cheat for kids cheat for exams these days, um, involving, you know, technology and, and just, you know, new and innovative ways to try and, you know, get past the system. Um, is that much of the focus here or is that just something that they, you know, lightly touch on, and then it really gets into just, you know, being sort of a very complex heist. It's not a terribly complex... Well, the thing is, Bad Genius is much more down-to-earth. I think the problem with Hong Kong films is that they always catch this, they have a gimmick, and they're so worried about making the gimmick work, they forget about everything else. They don't have a soul. Mm. That's the problem. There's no soul, there's no, no real intelligence. It's just... 
these what we call smart ass uh try to be clever but not smart it's clever but it's not smart you know what i mean mm. like it's just sort of like oh wink wink or oh okay that's cute or, that's entertaining or whatever that's interesting but it's not it doesn't tie it does it doesn't seamlessly tie into to a story it's not telling a story it's just giving you a bunch of scenes that's the problem with a lot of hong these kind of you know gimmick driven hong kong cinema here like i said it's just a great great idea but it's executed correctly as a story it's um the, the there are not that many cheating techniques in the film but each of them you know pushes the story further so in terms of script writing in terms of telling storytelling technique it works perfectly fine. Everything matters to the story. Everything serves the story. The story doesn't serve the the techniques. It's about how these techniques push the characters further and how it push them into into the next stage. Um, and it works that way. It, it's not just an empty, soulless movie with gimmicks. Um, and that's where Bad Genius really excel. It's it's smart in how clever it works, how these techniques serve the story rather than just serving you a bunch of techniques that you probably forget a few weeks later. Instead, you have memorable characters and and, uh, and a really suspenseful story where they make you care about whether these... And not not just because they're the, 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 the people you see on screen, but because they are characters who have stuck long enough that make you care about them. Um, so that's where really bad genius excel, and that's where trick or cheat sucks. Right. If we were to think about this in terms of the Hollywood formula, right, because you talked a little bit about how the ending, it doesn't really go to that place, right? If this were a Hollywood film, I'm thinking of something like uh, Risky Business, for example, the old Tom Cruise film. You know, also not really about cheating, but also about, you know, getting into a, a top school and then all the craziness that ensues in that film. And then by the end you know, the the hero is victorious. You know, it's not it's not a heist film. It's not a wink and a smile kind of thing, but in a way it is because he gets away with doing something. And he also, you know, what, what he was trying to get into Yale or Harvard at the end of that. And, um, you know, his ingenuity helps pave the way for that. I don't want you to spoil the film, but it sounds like from what you're saying is that this doesn't kind of take that everything's a happy ending kind of Hollywood approach right that there are some consequences involved if i answer that that's a spoiler <laughs> so <laughs> i can't i can't tell you more than what i've said right. and i've tried really hard to not not say anymore but no there like i said there is no easy answer and there is a moral dilemma when you steal you know but you know i think society becomes and i hate to be like i'm a liberal you know i'm not a conservative person but the thing is there are some things that are right and there's some things that are wrong and and i think um we talk about how you know china ruins everything because they they make their endings predictable but there are just some things that is just socially responsible and irresponsible right right and and the thing is when you do a high school with high school kids and if they just get away clean and they wink and a smile and you know it's all about ingenuity and how what should they when you make a film like that and it's aimed for young people what message are they going to get from the film right right and we we'll talk about meow right making a a, 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 a a responsible filmmakers you you do have a certain power and of course people would say oh it's just a movie um they are supposed to tell the story they want to tell but the thing is it, i think it's refreshing to see a heist movie that does question the morals of the heist and the actions 
and and it is refreshing to see it because then it becomes more than just a escapism whatever escapism fair more than just a just a film it it makes you question things and and if a film makes you come makes you come out thinking more and i'm all for it it should films good art should make you think instead of just giving you a simple entertainment with no sort of response you know with no sort of um um consequence whatsoever um so no matter which side of the debate I take, um, whether these kids are right, because like I said, the, the film does present this whole thing about how, you know, these kids realize that maybe what they're doing is fine because when they see the adults doing the same kind of, you know, these, these in some way they steal or in some way they cheat their, their way up to the, up the ladder. Why don't the kids do it? Why can't they do it? Um, and I think that's a very interesting question that the film asks. So for our next review, we've got a full sort of east screen, west screen split this week with a review of the new Netflix original film of sorts, uh, What Happened to Monday. This is a um, fairly new release um, that was picked up by Netflix from, I guess it's a it's a combination of the United States. I think Belgium and France uh, collaborated on this together. Um, the film is called What Happened to Monday. In Europe, it's known as Seven Sisters, apparently. Uh, this is coming from director Tommy Workola, who directed and wrote on films such as Hansel and Gretel, Witch Hunters, uh, Dead Snow 2. I think he was a writer on the original Dead Snow uh, back in the mid-2000s. The cast features Numi Rapace, Glenn Close, and William Defoe, among others. The story is a science fiction of sorts set in a dystopian future where siblings are outlawed. A group of septuplets, that's uh, seven identical twins, all played by Numi Rapace, must learn to survive. But when their sister Monday goes missing, they have to try and piece together what happened to her without drawing attention or suspicion on themselves. So this is a, it was an interesting film. It's a very solid sci-fi concept piece with some action kind of thrown in at the end. Uh, the dystopia is set up here as the sort of one-child policy, if you're familiar with the, the China policy. Uh, taken to an extreme. It doesn't take place in China. It takes, takes place in the West, but uh, it is basically that, uh, taken to an extreme level. It uh, feels in some ways very much akin to the Tim Robbins film Code 46 from 2003 or the classic film Gattaca from 97. Um, it doesn't quite have the gravitas to perhaps step out of the shadow of those two films, I think, um, but it's still a good, solid film in its own right. Because you have the main character here, um, or the main characters here, all played by Numi, uh, she plays against herself. So it shares some commonality with the series Orphan Black. Um, that's not a series I've seen too much of, but um, as I understand it, a lot of people love that show and really praise the main actress who takes on multiple personalities and roles against herself throughout the series. So you have a lot of that going on here. Um, and thinking about the the sort of world building they do here 
it just kind of stood out to me as funny as it is in contrast with some of the reality shows that were popular um, primarily back in the mid to late 2000s shows like uh, the you know the Duggar family show was uh, 18 and counting or John and Kate plus eight if you're familiar with those that you know reality shows that focused on these families that were huge I mean huge huge families and the things that they kind of had to do to make things work um, and then thinking about this as kind of uh, sort of extreme reaction to the opposite of that. Because one of the things that I c- remember seeing on forums and things, um, because we would watch these shows from time to time. We weren't uh, big, devout followers of them. But a lot of people, you know, would would criticize the Duggars, saying, you know, in this day and age, when you've got climate change and, you know, issues with resources and and things like that, they would look at families like the Duggars and say, how are, you know, how can you do this, you know, have so many kids and, and, you know, going forward, that's the irresponsible thing to do. So this kind of takes that idea and again, takes it to the very sort of extreme end. Um, this is a very adult film. It's not one I would recommend sitting down to watch with, uh, young kids or maybe even teenagers. Um, there's a little bit of sexy time in it in, in one scene, but it's got um, violence in places, some blood in places, and a few gut punch moments. So, uh, you know, I'd say, you know, viewer beware if you've got little ones wandering around when you've got this on the big screen. Um, there are standard sci-fi tropes here. It's very much a 1984 type of society. You know, that sort of uh, jackbooted stormtroopers, checkpoints, you know, uh, stuff that we're kind of slowly getting more and more of in regular society at certain places, but really taken to extremes. Um, and so it's got that familiar kind of sense to it when it comes to sci-fi tropes, you know, big big broadcast screens and places. Um, so it, it doesn't really do a lot that's new in terms of the world building. It's stuff you've seen before. It just kind of tweaks it and tries to make it its own. The um, They do throw in a couple plot twists. These are, I think, for people who are been around or consumed a lot of sci-fi you're going to see these coming fairly early out they're kind of predictable but it doesn't take away from the film at, at all the for the most part this film plays out like a bottle episode right if you're not familiar with a bottle episode it's you know when in an episode of tv when they just basically take the core characters and stick them in a room or uh, like the first saw is very much considered a bottle episode because it's just two characters basically in a room for the most part, and lots of dialogue. Um, so much of this film is that. It is basically a bottle episode with Numi as the sisters, you know, playing off themselves. And then by the second and into the third act, it kind of expands out beyond that. Um, <clears throat> the action does pick up in the latter half, as I said, but um, a lot of the things that start to happen get fairly predictable as it unveils plot points and releases these plot twists. Uh, one of them, if you're a fan of Star Trek, the original series, you're going to say, oh, that's a direct rip from Star Trek, the original series. I remember that episode. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, for others, you know, you're going to see other things again. It at times might feel a little bit color by numbers. You're going to say, if I'm going to do a dystopian film and the center of my dystopian film was this thing about seven identical twins or septuplets, you know, what am I going to put in there? You know, what am I going to borrow from? Um, so in that sense, it's a kind, it feels a little bit repetitive, perhaps a little bit familiar, but it's still fresh enough to be entertaining. 
Um, and overall, the film itself has very good quality. Um, I think Numi is very engaging with regard to what she's given to do acting against herself through these uh, seven roles. And, you know, some people I've talked to already who've seen this, they said, you know, it doesn't compare with the performance of the actress in Orphan Black. And it, I don't think it's fair to. Um, some of the criticism against this film has been that the characterization is very paper thin. But you're only given two hours for her to try and establish, you know, these seven different variations on character. And you're throwing in plot, you're throwing in world building, and you're trying to, you know, tell this overall narrative arc. So that's really hard to do. Some said this would have been better as a mini series or perhaps, a, you know, a regular series. And I would agree with that. But I think compressing it down and, and giving, you know, given what she's given to do here in the two hour period, I think it, it still works pretty well. Um, but there's definitely more that could have been done. I mean, this would have worked fine as a duology or a trilogy. I think there's more material that I wanted to see coming out of it. Um, you know, it, as it tries to tell the story, it tries to narratively break it up. So the girls themselves uh, are named by their grandfather, played by William Defoe, for days of the week because he suddenly finds, you know, his daughter has died in childbirth and he has these seven girls who are now all illegal. He's going to try and raise them and take care of them. And so he simply names them the days of the week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Um, so, again, it's kind of a quirky concept, but it does work in the scope of the storytelling. But then they try and take it and make it into almost chapters where for a period of the film, it, it'll you know flash up on the screen Monday and then you follow along with the character Monday. And it doesn't seem like, you know, because all the characters don't get the same amount of time. And once the narrative starts to unfold, it seems like they omit a couple of the characters just for the pace of the film. So, you know, there's the sense that certain characters get a lot more time. Than other characters so it's not really balanced um, so there's more material they could have done especially once the action kicks in um, a couple of the girls are kind of action based I would say but it never really feels like we know what these girls can do because we haven't spent much time with them and as a result it's it just feels like there's more to be told like you know the, the girls who are good at action it's like we never see them training so we're not really sure what they're good at until they suddenly start doing it. And then it kind of feels off. It's like, well, are they really that good? It's it's just not established well, I would say. Um, so there's more that they could have covered. It would have been interesting to see more of the girls when they were young, you know, dealing with how they're keeping up this facade. Because what they basically have to do is every day of the week, based on their the day of their name, they have to go out and they all take on the same persona. They all be the same person so they don't get caught. Um and so, you know, it would be interesting to see them trying to go through that a bit more, seeing how, you know, what kind of challenges pop up. They touch on it a little bit, but not enough, I think, for a, a really well-developed backstory for, for uh, these girls and the characters. Because they, they have different characters, and Numi does a good job, I think, of trying to bring that forward. But really, the one thing that you notice about them is the physicality, right? One has short hair, one has blonde hair one's a little bit you know dumpy one's athletic so it's the physicality of the visuals that helps you start to tell them apart initially um and i think that given more time uh she could have done that simply through performance so um, there's also a political subcurrent here that's interesting because it swings both ways a few times 
it starts out with speeches from people like Al Gore and Obama and things, you know, on climate change, on overpopulation. And so right off the bat, I'm thinking, oh, gosh, this has got a this has got a super political agenda. Right. But then it shifts because, you know, the world building they do with this, it says, well, you know, because of climate change and overpopulation, we don't have enough food. People are starving. So we have to use GMO, genetically modified food, to address food shortages. And so then it pushes to the other way, you know, sort of against the the GMO, the GMO issue. And then, oh, because of that, people now start having more babies, right? So overpopulation spikes. So it's like one issue leads to another problem that's addressing it, and that leads to a third problem, which swings it back the other way. Um, and so, yeah, people end up having, you know, twins and triplets and septuplets and things because of a result of eating the genetically modified food. So it's this interesting sort of political pendulum, depending on where you fall on the political spectrum. And so as a result, it's not really taking a super political stance um, on any of this. It's simply saying this happens, and then as a result, this happens, and then as a response to that, this happens. So, you know, it's basically humans are stupid D-bags, <laughs> no matter what they do. <laughs> um, and, you know, this ultimately this helps lead to what they call the CAB, the Child Allocation Bureau, which is this big military bureau which is responsible for capturing any children outside of the first child, right? So if you've got more, you know, any siblings beyond the first child, they need to be apprehended and they need to be put to sleep. And the sleep here is supposed to be a cryo-sleep thing. And this is where they get the sort of Big Brother-style, you know, um, videos throughout the city saying, you know, cryosleep, it's good, it's nice, it's, and in the future when everything's fine, we're going to wake everybody up. Um, so th that's kind of the main nemesis that they set up as the system here. They don't really get into deeper issues that would probably be existent, things like forced sterilization or other aspects that go along with one-child policies that might become a part of this world. Um, there is a mention kind of at one point when they're talking about the politics of it of a proposed bill that would enter fiduciary requirements to be passed so that only rich people could have babies because they could prove that they could afford to raise the child. And, you know, so there's there's some lip service to some of that. But again, there I think there's room to get a little bit deeper into that um, to make it a little bit more politically interesting. Um, so, you know, if again, if you think of a film like Code 46, um, which has good characterization, but they do a, it's a little bit more in depth in terms of some of the ways in which they build the world and the things you're supposed to do and, and not do. Um, but overall, I mean, this is an interesting concept. It's got some very good execution. I don't think this is going to be a classic in the sci-fi spectrum, but it's still one to see. Um, if you're looking for some new good sci-fi to watch this year and you're kind of done with the, the Marvel sequels and the, alien prequels and, and all of that stuff, um, you know, check this out because uh, I think you'll be easily entertained. You're listening to the East Screen, West Screen podcast. Visit Comcast.com for more.
And you have been listening to the East Green, West Green podcast. Our theme music was composed by Rob Jabor of Schnauzer Radio Orchestra. Research has come from a variety of sources, but primarily lovehkfilm.com and the Hong Kong Movie Database. We also get a tremendous amount of moral support from listeners like you. Listeners like our friend Peter up in Canada, who wrote to us once again, um, telling us a little bit about some of the movies he's seen and also uh, about his thoughts on the Toronto International Film Festival, which he says should be changed. The name should be changed to maybe the Toronto Not-So International Film Festival. Um, Kevin, you're the festival guy. You have a little bit more insight into this, perhaps? Well, yeah, uh, I think what um, the reader pointed out was that there are less Asian films this year, um, and it gave us a whole real big list and a comparison, and um, it's a huge lineup, so I didn't really quite have time to go and, and fact-check it, but I appreciate the work that went into it. Um, I guess a few notes, he talked about whether the Angelina Jolie film counts as a Cambodian film, because it's, it's you know, it's directed by an English speaker, it's written by an English speaker, it's bought up by Netflix, but the thing is, it's produced by Rizdi Pan, who is actually the sort of foremost Cambodian filmmaker that is um, that deals with the subject that the film, the Angelina Jolie film deals, which is the um, the, the, the massacre, the killings that were happened under the Khmer Rouge. Um, so I personally, I would count it as a Cambodian film. It was shot with Cambodian crew. It was produced by Rizdi Pan, who is a Cambodian filmmaker, and, and it stars and it's completely in the local language. So I would count that as a Cambodian film. But he count, yeah, he talks about how there are very few Asian films this year. There are only two at least in East Asia, there are only two Korean films this year. There's only one Hong Kong film. There's quite a few Chinese films, though. There's The Conformist, which stars Guambo. There's Yoon's The New Feng Xiaogang film. There's at least two Taiwan films. So that's already improving from last year. Um, so it's just sort of shifting. Shift. I, I see it as sort of shifting alliances. Um, and the truth is, yes, um, from what I've heard, um, you know, under, around the gossip mill is that Toronto has shrunken its lineup uh, for whatever reason it is. And perhaps it is because the lineup is too big. I mean, the thing is, it's the same problem with Busan, the same problem with Hong Kong, and the same problem with Toronto is that I find that these film, these festivals, they have such large lineups that there is so much selections that it sort of hurts the film's um, reputation. We're trying to premiere a film at a festival. I mean, the thing about Hong Kong is that these, these audience, these film festivals serve the audience, which is great because if you have a, a popular fest title from, say, Cannes or Berlin or, um, or Venice and you, it's, tried, it's traveling the circuit, it's a great, great way for audience to catch the films. But when you try to premiere at a, at a festival, which has such a huge line, I'm talking about 300 films in Busan, I think 300 films in Hong Kong, and I think over 300 in Toronto in, in, in only maybe 10 days in a very short period of time, then any films that are being shown for the first time really get buried. They they sort of get buried because there are only so many journalists, film journalists, that can cover so many films, and there's so much coverage, or there is so much coverage towards one film that everything else gets buried. And and I find that sometimes when you have such a daunting lineup, um, I find it a bit helpful if I'm a producer, if I'm a filmmaker, I would try and put my film at a festival with, with less films to be honest. Um, so in some way, it does serve these films well. There are going to be more people talking about Manhunt because it is the only Hong Kong film. And, you know, when Mad World premiered last year in Toronto, nobody talked about that film because it was such a big festival and no one could talk about 
that film because everyone else was talking about the 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 the, the Oscar contenders or or the other film by some Western filmmakers or something like that. No one talked about Mad World until Golden Horse, I think, until um um yeah, Golden Horse pretty much, or when it premiered here in Hong Kong. So um it is from what I've heard, Toronto has made this lineup smaller, so it's not just Asian films to get affected. But of course, if you're focused on Asian cinema, then of course you notice that the Asian films are getting affected. But in a way, again, it gives a bigger, I think, a, a bigger, smaller pool gives each film more of a spotlight because you know everyone's going to talk about John Woo, of course, and perhaps more people will talk about Feng Xiaogang. I'm not sure. I mean, Feng Xiaogang, of course, will have fans from uh, the Asian cinema. Uh, circle, but I hear great things about youth, but I don't know how many people are going to talk about it because, again, the lineup is so daunting and so large and so filled with Western-centric film journalists who want to talk about the Oscar contenders and not about the Asian cinema. But, you know, it's great. If if um, if you do get to see um, the Asian films that are playing there, I hear there's a Filipino uh, retrospective. Um, you get to see a couple of the really promising uh, Chinese films or Taiwanese films. Um, or of course we get to see Manhunt before all of us, please do write back and tell us about it. Yes, indeed. Uh, he also goes on to t talk about a couple of the uh, recent films that he saw. He mentioned he saw Wukong, and he thanks Kevin for reassuring him that uh, he was not missing some sort of reinterpretation of Journeys to the West. Uh, he found it pretty confusing, and he thought that the incredibly expanding staff was a bit Freudian. <laughs> and I got that just from looking at it in the trailer. I mean, that's a, <laughs> that's pretty pretty easy to spot. Um, he also talked a little bit about the nationalism of Wolf Warriors, or Wolf Warrior, Wolf Two. Warrior Two, or Wolf Warriors. I'm not sure. Is he talking about the first film or the second film? I guess it's the second film. Um, and he said it was more scary uh, to me or to him than it was for myself. Um, and he said, yeah, because he's talking about seeing it in a cinema. So he must be able to talk about Wolf Warrior 2. Um, he said, the good news is that I think the audience of X-Mainlanders that I saw it with was laughing at it, not with it. Um, however, it is well-crafted action film if you can filter for the nationalism. Uh, I'm pretty sure that the when I watched it, I was in a cinema with what appeared to be mostly Chinese viewers. I think I was the only Western viewer at my screening. I knew that there was a couple next to me who were who sounded like they were speaking Putonghua with a with a man a mainland accent. I don't think they were Taiwanese, but I couldn't tell the rest of the people. They could have been Cantonese. They could have been uh, Taiwanese people. It's hard to say. But nobody was laughing uh, at it. They most of the people seemed to be having a good time. There were some kids there. They um, the one thing that I read elsewhere was that there was an article. I want to say it was out of out of China press that was saying that people were like standing up and cheering, especially at the end when the passport, you know, scene comes up, um, you know, there were like standing ovations and things that certainly didn't happen in my screening. I'm not saying it <laughs> hasn't happened in other screenings. I guess it's possible. Um, but yeah, it was mostly just people went in, they seemed to enjoy it and, uh, they walked out and, uh, you know, waited for the, the mid credit scene. A couple people came back to watch that. Uh, so, yeah, I, you know, again, if you can, as he says, if you can filter out the nationalism, you'll find it as an entertaining actioner. For some people, if they're not able to do that, they might, that might grate on them and, and rub them the wrong way. Uh, one final comment from Peter that I failed to mention. He said he has seen 
the film that's out. It's playing now in in, in the states. Uh, Once upon a time, sort of Chinese uh, medieval fantasy film. And he says, since I don't do drugs, it's hard for me to comment. Could be a good drinking game in there. Every time the female character takes a drink, so could the audience. So, uh, don't know if you get away with that in the U.S. cinema because I don't think they allow alcohol in here. But who knows? So you can maybe try that uh, when it comes to a streaming service near you. Uh, has that played in Hong Kong, Kevin? No, I mean, I don't think there's any appearances in Hong Kong. It's based on some um, a TV series, a period TV series, and it's not Hong Kong audience's cup of tea, so I, I doubt it ever make it here. Again, thanks again to Peter for writing in. If you would like to be part of the show, as he was, please do get in touch with us at our website at concast.com or on Twitter, that is twitter.com slash concast. You can email us at eastscreen at gmail.com, and you can find us over on Facebook at East S West S. As always, I urge you to follow along with Kevin and all that he's doing. So, sir, where can they find out more about you? Okay, so I do have a site called Asia and Cinema. I know it's not been updated for a while, but I'm trying I'm trying my damnedest to, to change that. Um, once I clear off my, my work, and the thing is, ironic thing is if you know i'm not updating that means i'm making money and that means i will be able to afford the fees to run the site but the problem is i can't find time to run the site because i'm trying to make the money so um yeah i do have the, the site uh is asia and uh facebook page asia and cinema twitter asia and cinema i will touch those eventually i promise perhaps after i come back from tokyo um you can follow me on Twitter. If you're not in the typhoon, if you're in a safe place, um, I am at the Golden Rock, and I don't even tweet until I'm at a safe place. So don't worry, I I'm be fine. Um, at the Golden Rock, that's one word, the Golden Rock. Uh, you can read my work uh, on Cathay Pacific Airways or Cathay Dragon Airlines on Discovery Magazine and Silk Road Magazines. Um, you can also check out some of my work, in, including an interview with the directors of Mad World, or director and scriptwriter of Mad World, uh, and my piece on 29 plus 1. Those are on discovery.com. I'm sorry, uh, cathaypacific.com slash discovery. I've been talking about this for weeks, and I still can't get the URL right. I don't know why. Um, you can also email me at kevin at asiaincinema.com. All right, excellent. Um, please do also check out our friends over at Podcast on Fire Network um, and all the work that they're doing this summer. And also for our next episode, 239, who knows what's going to happen. I'm not sure. Uh, we're probably going to be on a short hiatus because uh, we're, I'm, I'm about six days off from a new arrival. So uh, I'm not sure what's going to happen. I had kind of planned things out uh, going forward, but because of release schedules and because of the baby release schedule, I don't know what's going to happen. We've got no Naga Pearl showing anywhere near me. I was hopeful that... You know, it might be showing down south in Miami, but it's not. They're still showing uh, Wolf Warrior 2, though. And uh, there's What is a... your obsession with that film, Paul? <laughs> Seriously, no one is going to watch it. No one watches that film. I don't know. I, it, I, I, I'd I watch it if it was close by. Uh, you know, it's something it to watch. Terrible. Um, it looks terrible. It looks terrible. I don't yeah, know. Um... I, I think when you watch Once Upon a Time and then the trailer for that and then watch Naga Pearls, it's like, I... Naga Pearls looks like it's a bit more entertaining, just just based on the trailers. I could be totally wrong. Um, so, yeah, but uh, there was a Bollywood film starting this week, um, action comedy called uh, The Gentleman, 
that I really want to see. I just don't know if I'm going to get out to see it. It's um... that also, to be honest, that also looks terrible, even by Bollywood standards. <laughs> Um, so yeah, I, I don't know what's going to happen. Um, we may be off for a week or two, uh, but, but hopefully we'll be back, uh, before the end of September for sure. I also have a couple special one-off episodes that I'm going to plan to do with, uh, with Kenneth and we want to get Kevin back on here to tell us about, uh, some of the films that he talked about a little bit earlier too. And hopefully they'll have something interesting that I can talk about. Um, was supposed to get the adventurers last week. No, that's nowhere near to be seen either. And uh, I don't know what's going to, you know, what I'll be getting of potential interest in the coming weeks. Um, Hopefully something interesting. I don't think we get the Jackie Chan film, The Foreigner, until October. So we will be back. That is one thing that uh, you can plan on. I just don't know what we'll be talking about because that's still a little bit up in the air. But there'll be something on our next show. Until then, this is the East Screen, West Screen podcast saying we wish you good viewing until whenever it is we come back, and we'll see you next time. Sayonara, everybody. Ah.